Hello, I'm Andrew Harrison. Welcome to Another Bunker Gold, where we bring back some classics that you might have missed from the bunker vaults. Today, is it becoming too expensive to have kids? The cost of living crisis has become even tighter since we recorded this edition in December 2022, and potential parents are having to worry about the cost of having a family as seldom before. It's a fascinating conversation, so listen up as Ross Taylor talks to Jolie Brealey, founder of Pregnant Then Screwed. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. I'd like to be honest about the effect having kids has had on my career. I can talk about the years when all my take-home pay went on paying someone else to look after my daughter. The jobs that were immediately out of reach as soon as I became pregnant. But I can't be entirely honest about it because I signed a non-disclosure agreement after having my second baby. So I'm very pleased to have the chance to talk to Jolie Brearley, the founder of Pregnant Then Screwed. Welcome to The Bunker, Jolie. Thank you for having me. What's your own story, Jolie? How did you come to found Pregnant Then Screwed? Uh, Well, I was four months pregnant with my first child and I informed my employer that I was pregnant. And the next day they sacked me by voicemail and my employer was a children's charity. So it just goes to show how no sector is immune from this type of discrimination. After that happened, I went for a routine hospital appointment and discovered I was having a high-risk pregnancy. The doctor said to me that the baby could come at any point, and if the baby came now, then tragically the baby would die because I was only four months pregnant. So they said, whatever you do right now, you've got to reduce stress in your life because it's stress that will trigger early onset labour. And as you only have three months to raise a tribunal claim from the point the discrimination occurs, I couldn't wait until the baby was born and he was safe uh, before I raised a tribunal claim. And so I was forced to drop the case. I couldn't take legal action against the employer. I literally had justice like snatched out of my hands. So I found myself lying on a sofa watching daytime telly with no job, um, no income, was completely reliant on my partner to pay for a roof over my head and food on the table. And those three weeks really radicalized me. They they changed me as a person. They made me see the world in a very different way. And so after my baby was born, he's fine. He's now a healthy nine-year-old. I um, started talking to other mums about their experiences at work and discovered that actually this was really common. These sorts of experiences happened far more often than I had initially realised. And so eventually I set up a place for women to be able to tell their stories of pregnancy and maternity discrimination anonymously because like you, Ros, many people sign non-disclosure agreements so they can't talk publicly about their experiences or they just don't want to be identified because, of course, we all work in very small sectors and we don't want to be branded a troublemaker. We now have a free legal advice line, so we support about 5,000 women per year. We run a mental health service for women who experience this type of discrimination and we campaign and lobby on all of the issues that women experience when they try and have children and a career and so the key ones are childcare, parental leave and flexible working as well as access to justice. It's a horrible feeling isn't it when you suddenly become dependent on your partner when you're pregnant or when you've got a baby? Yeah I mean it really is incredibly depressing when you have previously been entirely independent yourself and certainly for me I felt like 
I had worked really, really hard and was slowly progressing in my career. I was entirely independent and things were great. I was doing well in my career. I was about to have a baby. And then suddenly it was a crash bang landing into inequality and the fact that you do experience these very different extreme types of inequality when you get pregnant. It's frustrating, isn't it, that the government wants us in the workforce, there's a labour shortage, nobody wants us to be stuck at home forced to claim more benefits, and yet they make it so hard for us to work. They do. Um, There was a report done by the Equality and Human Rights Commission in 2016, which found that 54,000 women a year are pushed out of their jobs for getting pregnant. That's a woman every 10 minutes in the UK. One in nine pregnant women lose their job for getting pregnant. And 77% of working mums encounter some form of discrimination in the workplace. And what is really frightening about those stats is that the same report had been done 10 years previously, and those numbers had almost doubled. So rather than things improving, things were and still are drastically deteriorating. Now, that report made 12 recommendations to the government of things that they can do to improve the situation. Not a single one of those recommendations have been implemented in that time. And this report was done six years ago. On top of that, we have a childcare sector that is the most expensive in the developed world. And there are many different reasons for that. Firstly, because when the Conservative Party were trying to become the government under David Cameron, they put forward a 30 hours uh, subsidised childcare scheme forward from the age of three as a vote winner. But since then, a freedom of information request has been done to look at that 30 hours subsidised scheme and has found that it, it is underfunded by around £3 per child per hour. And so, of course, providers, early years educators, are having to make up that shortfall. And so the costs are being passed down the chain to younger children. That's why we're seeing these inflated costs. And of course, parents cannot work without childcare. You know, you can't leave little Johnny at home in a jumperoo, you know, and give him some beef flavoured hula hoops and hope that he will be fine. If you are working, you need really good quality, affordable childcare. And we simply do not have that in this country. The Chancellor is very keen to understand why we have so many, as he calls it, economically inactive people in this country. Well, I mean, we are here to tell him very clearly that a key reason for that is because people cannot afford to work because our childcare system is so expensive. And you wrote to the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, about the autumn statement, didn't you? Pointing out that something that really hasn't been noticed elsewhere, that uh, some benefits are being uprated, but not pregnancy benefits. Yes, so when they um, published all of the detail for the autumn statement, they said that they would increase benefits by 10.1%, but they didn't stipulate what would happen for parental leave benefit. They have now finally said that parental leave benefit will be uprated in line with inflation, which is positive. Um, However, parental leave benefit is still 47% of the minimum wage. It is not enough money to live on. 
more and more parents are saying to us that they're having to return to work well before they're ready, some even before they've spent a month with their child. And of course, you know, they haven't physically healed as well as be mentally prepared to return to work. So we're really concerned that this is going to cause serious long-term issues, both for usually it's the mother and for the child, because you know, there is lots of research that says that children really need to be with a primary carer up until the age of six months old. And what we're seeing is more and more parents being forced back into work because they cannot afford to take this time off. But the other issue with the budget was that although they're increasing the national living wage, which is great, of course, we want the national living wage to increase. But at the same time, they're not increasing the subsidies to the earlier sector. And so that means that for childcare, their costs are increasing and their income is staying remaining the same. Now, of course, that obviously means they either fold because they cannot afford to continue operating or those costs will increase even further for parents. You'd think that flexible working would have improved as a result of the pandemic. Now, you and I know that flexible working isn't a godsend when your kid is under under school age because they, you know, you cannot simply put them in the next room or in the side of the room and carry on working. It isn't that easy. But you'd think it, it, it would perhaps help parents who have slightly older children. Have you seen a change in the way employers are accepting flexible working or has it not really changed much? Flexible working is absolutely imperative for working parents, particularly for mothers, because they are the ones that tend to do the lion's share of the unpaid labour. We do almost three times the care work of men. And so you cannot do all of that unpaid labour and work a full-time job without losing your mind. No. (laughs) So so 40% of women work part-time and uh, I mean they're working the same number of hours as men are it's just that they're the majority of the work they are doing is not paid what we've seen since the pandemic is of course a big increase in the number of people working from home and that's great you know we were asking for more home working before the pandemic and of course it was a, a computer says no situation no that's not possible no that will never work but then as soon as the pandemic hit and companies were forced to adapt they found that they could um But simultaneously, what we've seen is a decrease in the number of part-time jobs that are available. And we've seen an increase on our helplines of the number of parents saying that their flexible working request is being rejected. And we think this is probably because companies think they've done enough, um, when actually for parents, as you say, they are more likely to need part-time work and flexible hours than they are home working because, you know, we heard stories from parents during the pandemic of them trying to have meetings with their CEO when their child coming in and sitting on their knee and drawing on their face and saying ridiculous things while they were in meetings. You know, you, you, you cannot look after a child and work. It is not possible. And we've seen, again, no action from the government on this, despite it being a manifesto pledge that they would make flexible work in the default, because they do understand that this is good for the economy. Flexible working has enormous benefits for our productivity, but also all of these people that we've got that they keep referring to who are economically inactive, the majority of them really want some form of flexible working so that they can come back into the labour market. 
Um, but sadly, we, we're seeing act- actually a reversal in that type of flexible working. I do see in the last decade more men being actively involved in childcare. I see more men out with prams. I see more men carrying kids, doing the school pickups. Do you feel that more men, and of course some have and always have, but more men are starting to get it, how hard it is? Yes, I do. And, you know, the the research that we have done has found that the majority of men, about 80% of men, say they would do anything to spend more time with their kids. Men really want to see their children and they don't want to be working ridiculous hours all the time. And particularly since the pandemic, when they had time to be at home and to see their children much more, they've realised what they're missing out on. The problem is that our whole setup prevents them from spending time with their kids because our parental leave system encourages mothers to take time out. It doesn't encourage dads to do the same. Dads get access to two weeks of paternity leave, which is paid at £156 a week. One in four men say they cannot afford to even take those two weeks, so they don't. Whereas women get six weeks off at 90% of their salary, and then they get up to nine months off, paid at £156 a week. And it tends to be women that um, earn less than, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, it tends to be the woman who's earning the least. And so when you're making decisions as a family, you would decide, obviously, that the woman is going to take the time out because that makes sense, the most sense financially. We've created a system that doesn't enable dads to be the parents that they want to be. And many of them are pushing against that system and asking for flexible working, but actually the data shows they're more likely to be rejected if they make that request than a mother is. Um, but still, you know, they really want to and they're really trying and they're, they're going to the school gates and doing everything they can. I think if we could create the system um, that allows them to take time off in those early days, so preferably ring-fenced, properly paid paternity leave, we know from looking at other countries like Sweden, Iceland, Norway, Quebec even, that if you do that, dads take time out in droves to care for their children. So we really need to fix our parental leave system so that dads can do what they want and spend more time with their children. What do you say to those people, and there are some of them, who say having a child is a lifestyle choice. If you if you decide to go down that road, you have to be financially responsible enough to do it. And let's face it, that that viewpoint has leaked into public policy with the restrictions on benefits for people who have more than two children. Mm. What do you say to those those people? I mean, we hear this comment probably about six times a day. Um, and I love this notion that, you know, it's a sort of lifestyle choice as if, you know, having a child is like going to the local spa or having your nails done. When actually, if we stopped having children, um, we our future economy would be in a complete mess. We are literally reproducing the labour market. Uh, But we also know that investing in early years education has a positive impact on the economy. If you look at what Canada has just done, um, they are investing $30 billion in their childcare sector to create a system that costs no more than $10 a day. And they have done this not out of the goodness of their hearts. They've done it because they crunch the numbers and for every dollar 
they invested in childcare, they got between $1.50 and $2.80 back into the wider economy. And it's not just an investment in the economy, it's an investment in children. First 1,001 days of a child's life are the most foundational for their future. You know, time and time again, the research has, has shown that. Yet all of the money that we spend on children tends to happen later in life. It doesn't happen earlier. As a proportion of GDP, we only spend 0.1% on childcare. It's a tiny, tiny proportion um, of what we spend on the education system. Why is it that we we are fine with us having a free education system. We get it. We see that investing in children's education is really good for all of us. But yet before the age of five, we we seem to think that parents should be paying an extortionate amount and only those who are earning large sums of money should be able to access education for their children. It doesn't make any sense. So investing in childcare is an investment in our economy because it allows parents to go back to work. It allows them to work the hours that they want to. It's an investment in our children because it's this is early years education. Um, and it's an investment in all of us, because those children will grow up and be our future workforce. They are the ones that are going to keep our country going when we are pensioners and we need our bottoms wiping by somebody. You had a march of the mummies at the end of October, big protests around the UK. Are you going to have another one? We're not sure at the moment. I mean, protesting is... we. We didn't expect to do a protest and for the government to immediately go, oh, oh, right, okay, yes, we need to fix our childcare system. There we go, sorted. We know that protesting has a magical effect in that it it gets an enormous amount of publicity. So we had lots and lots of press coverage about what we're doing, but it is also a signal to the government that people are furious. You know, getting parents out on the streets and marching is not easy. It's it's hard enough leaving the house when you've got a baby, let alone going to a big protest. Um, and so we know that the conversations are happening in Westminster off the back of this protest because they've realized that people really are furious. We really have had enough of being let down and ignored and sidelined and that the government are making it impossible for two parents to be able to work, yet we've created a system where both parents need to work in order to survive. So we we really enjoyed Match of the Mummies. We're really glad we did it. We know that it had the intended impact. But um, they're very challenging and difficult to organise and very time consuming. So um, we at the moment are thinking about what is next. You know, we've been going for seven years. We get stronger and stronger each year um, and we can be quite reactive rather than proactive. So we're, we're just sort of taking our time now, seeing what the government's next move is and we will be responding accordingly. Jolie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Jolie is the author of The Motherhood Penalty, How to Stop Motherhood Being the Kiss of Death for Your Career, which I wish had been around when I had very young children. These are tough times, we know, but if you'd like to support The Bunker, you can do so by just searching Patreon Bunker Podcast, and we'd be delighted if you did. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerberton. 
Assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.